Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be. We've been studying through this for a long time. You don't care. You're just excited about today, which is good. Um, and we're going to see cool stuff today. And the analogy or the, the kind of way I think about this is like when I propose to my wife, I spent a lot of time preparing and uh, a lot of thought went into it. I bought a certain type of ring. It was like the shape she wanted because that's a big thing, right? And it was the color she wanted because if she wants silver and you get gold, you know, if you're, any of you are dating, right? Don't screw that up, right? So get the, sorry, I pointed at people I shouldn't have. Um, but she's not here, so it's not bad. Uh, and so I'm joking. That I don't even know if that's true. So, uh, but you just like prepare and you do the things that you're thinking through. And I picked the color she liked. And uh, there was Christmas decorations because Christmas is her favorite holiday. And I picked this memorable place in the mountains because she lived close to mountains and she likes the mountains. And I proposed on her birthday weekend and I decorated with blue and silver because blue's her favorite color. And I just went on down the line, right? Over and over, on and on it went. I picked things that were in some way meaningful in her life or in our relationship or some combination of the two. And my point is there was lots that I did that communicated something, okay? That they communicated thought and value and hopefully love and care. And I did that. And I'm not trying to make myself the hero of this story, right? You guys do that all the time, right? You make your husband's favorite meal for a certain time when he comes home, or, you know, you buy your wife the certain types of flowers that she likes, or you say a certain thing that you guys have always said to each other. Like, you do that kind of intuitively in a way that, like, I want to communicate not only the thing that I'm communicating, but also, like, do it in a way that makes you feel loved and valued and cared for and also communicate something. Does that make sense to you? Like, we're not just doing things. We're also doing things that are meaningful and purposeful and intentional. And God is doing the same thing as we've been working through the book of Exodus. The big picture of the book of Exodus is that God is producing a people but as God is producing this people, he's doing it in such a way that communicates something to almost every little detail, right? He's going about and he's like, oh, favorite color here and right time of season here and like animal here and thing I said here. And he's over and over, he's producing a people in a way that communicates something Else. And these details are drawing this powerful picture and revealing this really incredible plan and character and depth of what he's doing as he is producing a people. And to be honest, it's been a little overwhelming for me, uh, which is part of the reason it's taken us so dang long to get through the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, because it feels like every week I like sit down and I'm studying through and I'm reading and I'm like, well, we have to talk about that and we can't skip that. I'm like, I have to bring this up and I have to point that out because there's just a lot of, of God's word that's awesome and you should know and be encouraged by. And so, uh, to be honest, sometimes I read through it and I'm like, God, I don't know how we're going to fit it into 45-minute chunks on Sunday mornings. It almost seems like inappropriate, right? Because I'm going to try and give you the best summary version of some of the ideas knowing that it's going to be woefully inefficient for the amount of time that should be spent on this type of thing. Like when I say my wife's favorite color is blue from when I proposed her, there is a long history of why that is and things she's owned and why she loves blue and what it reminds her of. Like it's what 
Her favorite color is blue is like this little statement that has years and years and years, decades now of depth behind it. Or the idea that her favorite day is Christmas, her favorite holiday is Christmas. It's like got memories attached to it and nostalgia and like things that she really enjoys about it and tastes and smells and like relationships and, and salvation, Jesus being born. Like there's so much behind that. So as I point these things out, I want to say like, I know this summary is going to be fast. And I know that sometimes when I just like, oh yeah, did you see that picture there? There's so much depth behind it. But we're going to we're going to do that quickly uh, today as we get into what we're going to study at the end of chapter 20. So here it is. Here's the quick summary version of where we are and where we're going. We've been working through Exodus. We've noticed as we work through this particular section of Exodus, chapters 19 through 24, there's been a pattern in the text. Okay, we called that a chiasm or some people call it a chiasma. And it's a pattern of ideas where ideas are recited in order and then they're flipped around and recited in reverse order. Uh, I think we might even have, our sound guys are good at stuff like this. They might even be able to throw that up for you. But the ideas went A, B, C, B, A, right? So we went up and then we went back down. And the two A's, the outside kind of ideas in the pattern were these stories where Moses went up the mountain and then came back down the mountain. And then the people responded to Moses's interaction with God with all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And there were like almost word for word repetitions of it. And then the B's were these blocks of laws on either side. The first block was the 10 commandments. The second block of laws were these 42 commandments. And it all kind of pointed to this C section in the middle, which was this very small point of, I, I believe it's the turning point of the book of Exodus, this three verse kind of story, this picture that we have. Did we get that up there, Toby? Are you working on it? Can you throw it up there? A, B, C, B, A. Right? It's pointing at this very small idea in the middle, this three-verse section. Yeah, there it is. Right? So this, it kind of drew your attention to this section in the middle, which was 18 to 21, these verses. And it was this picture of the people supposed to be near to God, but at the end of it, they're far off while Moses goes up the mountain. So we have the people of God far off while one man goes up doing what the people should do to meet with God. So we've talked about every part of this pattern. We've talked about the A sections, right? That they were supposed to meet with God, that they said, all that God has spoken, we will do. We've talked about uh, the first B section, the Ten Commandments, that took us forever. We talked about the middle part, the C part, uh, this little picture of one man doing what the people should do. We have not talked about the second B. So that's what we're going to talk about today. If you're wondering where this fits and what we've talked about is that's where we're going to pick it up. So here we go. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 21 and says this, and we're going to have one sentence of the last ending of the C uh, part of the pattern and then jump into this block of laws. So verse 21 said this, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In verse 22, and the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor, you shall, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth shall you make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. 
I will, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness is not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free, out for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. All right, so that's what we're going to cover this morning. So we go from this little picture, this little middle section that all of the kind of structure of this, the pattern of the writing draws our attention to, and this image of Moses going up on behalf of the people, and then we jump right back into more laws, okay? And the interesting thing is that the first two laws in this second block of laws in the second B section, those first two laws are pretty interesting, and how God introduces those laws are pretty interesting. So we're going to talk about this morning. It's maybe not the most breathtaking thing you've ever read in your Bible. You're like, okay, draw his ear through with an awl. Okay, sounds cool, right? But I think if we talk about it and think through it a little bit, we can get there. So here we go. God introduces this second block of laws in a unique way. If you remember when God introduced the first block of laws, that's fine, uh, in the Ten Commandments, he said, you have seen for yourselves what I did for the Egyptians. You, you saw how I brought you out of Egypt. And so there was this very clear drawing of connection between that first block of laws and how God was bringing them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, out of how they had been living, this culture that they had been immersed in that was creating slavery and idolatry and ungodliness. But now he gives you a very different reasoning for the second block of laws. He starts it the same way. He says, you have seen for yourselves, but then he says this, that I have talked with you from heaven. Look at the end of verse 22, right? So the, the first block of laws was very much about coming out of Egypt. And now this second block of laws is based on this presumption or not presumption, but this experience that they just had of God actually speaking to them. Okay, so the backdrop that we are working with here is God speaking to his people. Do you see that? Verse 22, everybody look at your Bible right now. Verse 22, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I talked with you from heaven. So that's the, that's the backdrop, right? If we were, you know, this is the background of what's going on. I said things to you. I communicated to you. I desire to connect with you. This is not a God who's like, hey, do what I said. All right, I'm out. Now I'm just going to be judging you from afar. He's like, no, I'm, I'm speaking with you. I'm connecting with you. I'm interacting with you as my people. There's communication going on here. So then there's these two components of this connection, okay? The speaking with the people is connected to the very first law afterwards. And what is it? It's not an idol. It's not a statue, it's not an image, it's not gold, it's not silver, it's an altar. Do you see that connection? 
right? God's like, you saw how I spoke to you. And people are like, yeah, let's connect with God. Let's speak to God. Let's hear from God. And then how would you go about doing that? Well, if you were pagan or if you were back in the day, you'd be like, we need to connect with God. Let's get some silver. Let's get some gold. Let's make a statue. And God's like, nope, not how we're doing it. I am going to connect with you. It's not going to involve statues. It's not going to involve silver. It's not going to involve gold. It's not going to involve fancy jewelry or precious stones or any of the things that the people around you connect with God or find meaning in their life with. It's going to involve an altar. And look what he says, verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver or gold to be with, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall go up, not by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So these two ideas of God speaking and coming to God by means of an altar are now tied together and connected. Like the speaking God desires to be communicated with and connected to not by statues or fanciness or riches, but by an altar. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. But what God does here then after he says, we're gonna, we're gonna start with laws about altars, is he says, and there's two things you should do and not do with my altars. In verse 25, he warns against building, building an altar out of hewn stones. Okay, so this is an altar out of stones that you cut. And more specifically, probably cut in a certain way and decorated in a certain way. He doesn't want any carving done on this altar. Okay, God doesn't want any embellishments or design features. He actually says, I don't want you to work on it at all. If you put any work into it at all, he says, if you touch it, with your tool, you will profane it. Profanity. It's like an F word to me. I don't want you to touch it with your tool. Look at the end of verse 25. If you wield your tool on it, you profane it. If you make an image that you choose, you profane it. If you decorate it how you like it and symbolize it in the way you want it to be symbolized, then you profane it. It's no longer acceptable to me. I don't want that at all. In fact, it seems really important to God that the altar is not a work of the people's hands in any way whatsoever. To build an altar, which was the work of our hands, would then be profanity to God. It's a pretty strong word choice here, right? You should do that. When you read through it, you're like, profanity? Why, why are you so fired up about this, God? What is God actually upset about? Why is he using those really strong words, right? To make the altar fancy and in the way you want it to look would be profanity in a worship and communication with God. And then the second thing is in verse 26, he says, don't make it too big. Don't make it too big. It doesn't need steps. doesn't need an escalator, right? It doesn't need to be visible from a great distance. We're not in Texas here. It doesn't need to be ridiculously, excessively sized, okay? Because if you were to build it too big and you had to go steps on it, if you had to climb on it to do the worship and sacrifice on it, your inadequacy, your nakedness, your lack of 
ability to connect with God would be exposed. So there's a couple ideas here. Don't make it too big. And what goes on the altar needs to be acceptable to me, and you are not that. So these ideas are the exact opposite of the things one would expect when you're trying to build a religious structure or something that is symbolic and holy and sacred and is intended to connect with God. We really like fancy and luxurious things, don't we? That's what makes us feel best about ourselves and our lives. And of course, that's what should make us feel best about God, right? If we're trying to build a religious structure or something that is symbolic or something that we're connecting with God with, we want to feel good about it. So let's make it big. Let's make it fancy. Let's make it detailed, right? That's all the religious buildings you see, that's kind of how it, well, we should do it like this and we should make it like this and it should be that kind of way. We want to feel good about the way we worship. And God here describes something completely different. He describes every altar that he wants built as a place where his name is remembered and it's incredibly ordinary. It's just regular rocks from a regular place and it's not decorated, and it's not fancy, and it's not incredibly huge, small and simple, and just big enough to serve its purpose. Now, you have to see as you read this that our tendency as the people of God is to add more stuff and to add more unnecessary stuff. There is a time when you don't take God and his word seriously. And, 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 and I think we all kind of understand that like there's, there's a time in your life where you didn't take God very seriously and you weren't very committed to what he wanted to do. And that was, that was kind of unacceptable. Like, man, if, if God is who he says he is, then to take all this lightly and to disregard some of these things that we're not comfortable with, that's unacceptable. But there's also this understanding that we're talking about here that once you decide to take that step, you're like, no, 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 I think I'm in on this. I think I'm committed to this. Then the danger becomes not that we don't do enough to show our seriousness to God, but that we do too much. We add too much complication to it. We add too many layers of complexity. We make it too much of the things that God did not want. And there's a danger, and it's a bit of a blind spot for the people of God, right? Because like I said, we see clearly the people who in our eyes, and this would be a very judgy way to say this, so I wouldn't say this to people, but I think just for the purpose of you understanding what I'm talking about, we see clearly the people who are like, eh, probably could do more, not doing enough. But we're usually not very in tune with the idea of our hearts adding too much or, or, or putting too much, like wielding too much tools on the thing and like making it too much in our image, right? Making it too much, making the worship of God look too much like we're comfortable with. Well, I like it like this, and this is what I would do, and if we could have it our way, we'd have this over here, and that over here, and it'd look like this, and be built out of this, and work at this time, and last for this time, because I got to get to football, and you know, we start doing our things where we want it to look like we're comfortable with, and I think it's good for the people of God to know that about themselves, because what happens? Right? It's happening in our, we just talked about it on our leadership retreat this weekend, uh, people are leaving churches because the altars don't look like they want them to. I would like more decorated. I would like less decorated. I would like higher stones. I would like, and so people are just gone. 40%, uh, I'm sorry, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church in the last 20 years. And it's not just because they're like, 
super liberal, in fact, politically conservative people are leaving churches at twice the rate of politically liberal people right now in our country. Why? Because we're in this place where we want worship to look like we want, or want it to look, and when it doesn't, we're like, oh, I'll go somewhere else or not go anywhere at all. That was a soapbox, didn't mean to get there. So the two sacrifices that God mentions here as he begins to this block of laws with the law about construction of altars, in verse 24, he says this, build this altar in this way, keep it simple, just functional, so that you can have your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in the sacrificial offerings in general, right? This idea of something dying that something else might be atoned for or that might have life. And the people understand this because these people have already come out and sacrificed the Passover lamb that they might be free from slavery. So they get the idea of kind of this like death that leads to life thing happening here. But then specifically for connection with and interaction with God, he mentions here in this very first law after the Ten Commandments, after this beautiful picture of the one man doing what the whole people of God couldn't, he says burnt offering and peace offering. What are those about? Well, you can do some research in your Bible, but the burnt offering was the most foundational of all the sacrifices. This was the most costly, the most sacrificial. This is where you put a whole animal on the altar and the whole thing was consumed by fire. You just burnt the whole thing, right? This bull, it's worth a lot. We're just gonna put it on the fire and offer it to God and it's all gone. We're not saving part of it. It's all going to go up in flames to God. The whole thing is offered on the altar as a sacrifice to God. Now that was different than a peace offering. In the peace offering, only part of the animal was burnt. Okay? So the rest of the animal was then cooked, barbecued, right? Church potlucks go way back further than you think, right? So this was then spread throughout the community as a party, so we would burn part of it, we would give our thanks to God, but then the rest of it would be cooked and shared as a community feast. The peace offering, or literally the Jewish word is shalom, right? The shalom offering, and, and the Jewish word shalom is, is kind of like peace in our American, but it's way more deep than that, actually, right? It's, it's Compared to our definition of peace, which is pretty shallow, shalom is wholeness and harmony. And we talk, when we talk about peace, we think about the absence of conflict in English. We're like, oh, peace is like, my kids just stop fighting so I can have some peace, right? But shalom is this idea is not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of intentional relational harmony. So it's not that your kids just stop fighting. Like you have an iPad and you have an iPad and you have an iPad and everybody shut up, right? But it's like, if your kids were like hugging and like working together on something and they're like, we just love each other, you'd be like, right? I have small kids. So all my analogies have small kids in them. But that is completely different than just like, stop arguing. It's like relational harmony and unity. So that's the peace offering, the shalom offering. So you have a party with the, the meal that is produced by this animal. You bring community together intentionally and engage as we all receive a part of the animal that was sacrificed. So if you were offering a peace offering, you would invite people like it was a community event. This would be like a feast, a festival. I'd be like, I'm doing a peace offering. And people would be like, sign me up, I'm coming. And, and come over on Tuesday, we're gonna offer a peace offering and then we're gonna feast and everybody's gonna get some. So where the burnt offering is completely consumed as an offering to God, the peace offering 
is distributed among the people so that everyone receives from the animal that gave its life and in that way it draws these people together. So think of the pictures here. We have this little story at the end of uh, chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, of this one man going up to the Father on behalf of the people of God. And that imagery is very clear as the people stand afar off and the one man draws near. And then God clearly wants to speak to and connect with his people in this way. And the first thing he starts doing is he starts talking about altars. And then he starts talking about burnt offerings and peace offerings that will be made on that altar and how we build an altar so one animal can be consumed as an offering to God in a burnt offering. And then also how one animal can give its life as a celebration of shalom and relational harmony for the gathered community. And its death, just like the Passover lamb, will be spread among the people that all may have joy and partake in its, its life-giving death. You think that imagery is on accident? You think God was just like, oh, no, I got to put a law about altars somewhere. Or is it immediately after the picture of the one man going up to God on behalf of the people of God who are far off that God's like, no, here's where the altar laws go. Right here. I want, I want the first thing you know about this. And so God is producing a people in the book of Exodus, yes, but he's doing it in such a way that communicates something. He's working with patterns and images and stories and symbolism that sparks memories and connections in his people and peace and, 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 and revealing of his plan. And he's reminding them, I'm trying to communicate with you. And, and this like smells like Jesus in so many ways, right? Like the idea that it's like completely consumed in a burnt offering that we might be acceptable to God. Or that we share in the life-giving peace offering, right? That, that part of his body was completely consumed, but part of it was spread throughout everybody. We're, we do the communion thing all the time as a church. It's like, this is the body of Christ spread among all of us that we might be drawn together in unity. It probably has your mind spinning a little bit, and that's okay, and it's probably a little bit intentional. There, there's so much to be understood here. And I don't want you to have like a full, like, like just a, that story I began at the beginning, right? When I was like, oh, I use blue because Megan's favorite color is blue. And you're like, wait, let's get to the bottom of this. And some people just like, don't accept that like, oh, that's so cool that God made this little picture here. They're like, we need to find out all the details about that, which is fine. Probably won't happen here on a Sunday morning, but I'm not intending to like, explain every detail. In fact, there's probably a bunch I missed, right? You could probably read through this and be like, man, I see 20 things about the goodness of God here that Jared skipped over. Maybe we didn't have time. Maybe I'm too dumb and didn't see it when I studied. But I don't know, but some of this is just like reinforcing, like this is all pointing to Jesus. This is all pointing to the one man who draw near to the Father on behalf of the people who are far off, who gave his life as a burnt offering that we might be atoned for, who gave his life as a peace offering that we might enjoy community and joy and, and, and hope and future, right? All of this is pointing to Jesus. And then he does this weird thing, right? It's all this cool, like sacrificial communication, like altars, like don't add too much complexity to it. I don't want it to look like you want it to look like, I want it to look like, I want it to look like. And then he goes, chapter 21, verse one, slaves. And you're like, what? Like I thought we were doing like this, like this was a cool 
thing we're in. Like now we're talking about slaves? Where, where did this come from? And we just take a hard left and we're like, okay, I guess we're doing a lot about slaves now. What's this about? Look at chapter 21, verse one. Now these are the rules you shall set before them. Verse two, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Now, I, I, I get that in America, uh, at our time and place, this idea of slavery is rightfully very painful to talk about. Uh, but this is not slavery like we know slavery. And I don't, I don't want to get super hung up on that right now because uh, I, don't, I think there are good answers for like what's going on here with slavery and, and things like that. But I just want you to see the picture here. Okay, so this is not going to be a sermon on slavery. And, and that's not because I'm like skipping over it or saying it's not a big deal. I just don't want to get, I don't want to miss the picture. God here starts with this, that nobody owns anybody else as forever property. Okay, so that's already way different uh, than our understanding of slavery. There's a mandated limitation on slavery and it's every seven years, everybody gets to go free. Okay, so if now, lots of slavery in those days was like, oh, I have a debt to pay, or I got to work something off, or like, you know, it was, it was that kind of thing. It was much more commonly kind of an employer-employee relationship. But anyway, uh, after every seven years, everybody gets to go free, no matter their circumstances. But then in this law, God creates this new type of slave, Okay which he says in verse five, if the slave says, I love my master and the wife and the kids that my master has allowed me to have, I don't wanna be free. I want to serve my master. Okay, so this is, this is like a whole different thing. This, isn't, this has nothing to do with the type of slavery we're talking about in America. This is like, I'm a slave on purpose. Like I love my master. I've lived with my master. He's good and kind and he's allowed me this life, and I choose not to be free. I choose to be his slave. That's, that's a different thing right there. He says, if that happens, then you bring him to the doorpost, and you take an awl, so, or you know, a spike, and you drive it through his ear, and you put a big fat gold earring in his ear, and that would be a sign that he was a free choice slave. Like he was a slave because he chose to be a slave. Okay, so it's not just any old slave or servant. This is something very different. This guy chose to serve his master. This wasn't some debt he was trying to pay off. No forced labor here, not owning another person. This was someone who said, I choose this person to be my master. And because it was such a different type of relationship and situation, they called it something different. Okay, it wasn't just slave. It was like, this is a special and different kind. And by the time the New Testament writers came on the scene, they called this type of person in, in your New Testament scriptures, a bond servant. This wasn't just like, hey, you like, you're in debt. You got to work for me until you pay it off. This was like, no, no, this guy loves his master and has chosen not to be free, but to serve his master. This is a 
bondservant. And what would happen is this would become the favorite way for New Testament writers, including Paul and Peter and other New Testament apostles to describe themselves as this type of servant to Jesus. Is that I have chosen commitment to this master. I have chosen not to just go do what I feel like doing because I love my master and realize this is the one I want to serve. These are servants who are willingly surrendered to their master out of love. So now think about how weird this is. If we're talking about like, okay, God, there's 300 some odd laws here in the Old Testament. One of the first 12 is about slaves. Isn't that weird? Like the first 12 things we need to talk about. Like, okay, what are they? And very early, he gets this picture of altars and, 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 and Moses going up on behalf of the people. And then he goes, and if you want to serve your master, if you want to willingly commit to service of your master for a lifetime, I'm going to put that picture right here. Right at the front. Right at the front of what it means to live out this new life as the people of God. I want you to have a clear picture of how you can actually do that. Right? And, and, and it's not make it look like you want it to look. It's not like decorate it like you want it to decorate it. Like, oh, my altar's pink and purple and has sparklies on it, right? Because I like to worship God that way. He's like, no, no, no. You build an altar like I want it to look. And if you want the picture of the type of person who will understand what it is to be the people of God, here's the picture. Bond servant. Free slave. It's a pretty powerful picture, right? And, and you probably didn't know where it was in your Bible. Like, people have heard that idea of bond servant. They're like, yeah, it's in here somewhere. It's not just in there anywhere. It's in there right after the turning point where we see a people of God who want to draw near but can't. They're far off. The one man goes up, and we get this idea of communication between God and altars and sacrifices and burn offerings and peace offerings. It's like, yeah, I get all that. You get all it? Slave. Slave to a good master. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and uh, how it, gives us images and pictures and ideas that interpret our lives, Lord. It gives us ways to understand what's happening to us and, and interpret our reality. And, uh, and I thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I think that it's, it's pretty clear from what we read this morning, you're a good master. You offer sacrifices and life and make a way where there was no way. And you give us hope and future and purpose. And maybe there's some people who came this morning who have never thought about the idea of completely surrendering to you for their entire lives. Maybe there's some people here this morning who have been on the fence of, I don't know, should I surrender? Should I give up? Should I take this step of obedience? Should I actually call myself a slave to Jesus? It seems harsh. I kind of want to maintain my own autonomy. That's how I feel, Lord. And yet I know the right response is to give it all up for you because you're good.